Welcome to Authors Unedited, a podcast with Dominic Stevenson. So I'm super, super excited and quite starstruck to be with the person that I'm interviewing today. She's a world, worldwide phenomenon who single-handedly turned the tables on one of the world's best-known series of crimes. So please, could you introduce yourself to us? My name is Hallie Rubenhold, and I am the author of The Five, and I'm a social historian. And so in, in the past, you've worked in, in the arts in a range of roles, but what has appealed to you specifically about writing as a way to express yourself? Well, I think... It, the funny thing is, I think I always was a writer. I was born a writer. And I know that's kind of frustrating to hear um, if you weren't necessarily born a writer. I just knew that the way I wanted to express myself was to tell stories. Um, and when I was very young, I mean, before I could even write myself, I would dictate stories to my parents to write down for me. And I would make little books. Um, so I always wanted to tell stories. I've also, I've, um, very, I've also been very interested with uh, visual storytelling. Um, so I studied art history as well. Um, and, um, and I studied film in addition to studying history. And, um, and I think those three mediums are not completely unrelated. Um, I'm interested in epics, but I'm also interested in, in the micro. So the macro and the micro together. Um, and, and telling long joined up stories but also focusing the lens down on a scene doing something very small also what somebody's role would be in the larger scheme in the epic no, that, that seems something perfectly exemplified in the five that you talk about this thing which the world has always assumed it's known a lot about but you go into a lot of detail on the stories of the five the, sorry, the, the five women involved. And, and I think, for me, that's what I found particularly appealing about it. And, but th- this isn't your first non-fiction book. So how did you go about, when you were just a budding writer, sort of pitching your very first, first book? Well, <laughs> interestingly, I mean, the thing about life is that it takes you in very unexpected places and introduces you to people in situations you don't expect. And um, how my first book came around, it came about, is a very good example of that because I had always thought that what I would write would be novels and that that's how I would make my name is, is writing fiction. And I love writing fiction. Um, but I also knew that my career was taking quite an academic turn and that I needed to write nonfiction um, as, 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 as part of my role as a historian. And so interestingly enough, I was um, at a wedding of a friend, um, it was about 2002, 2003, and I sat next to a, a man who was a publisher and he was asking me about um, what I was interested in and I said I was a social historian and I was interested in the history of everyday life more specifically about um, uh, relationships, marriage, sex, child rearing, these sorts of things and um, he said to me 
have you ever heard of something called the Harris's List of Covent Garden Ladies? And I said, oh yeah, I, you know, I have. And it was this, you know, it's this set of guidebooks to um, sex workers in the 18th century. Um, and he said, well, do you think there's a book in that? And I said, well, I don't know, I can go and have a look. And he said, well, go and have a look and then just send me a piece of paper with, you know, your thoughts. And so I did that, and I thought, wow, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, you know, maybe that could make a book. And I sent it out to him, and then I got this book contract in the post. And it was, that was it. That, that was it. And, you know, with hindsight, I would have done that a bit differently. Um, and um, after I published that book, I was able to get an agent. And, you know, this, the whole process of this is something that when you're at, uh, early, in the early stages of your, your career, you don't know what to do first. And um, my agent at the time said you know you really should have got an agent before you signed a book contract and that's a bit of advice I would give to pretty much anybody at this point. Yeah I've just um, I've just signed my first book deal myself and I've done the same no agent just trust and faith in the publisher and I do know the people I'm working with so I'm happy with that but I think that is very sage sage advice and as you said, you've written non-fiction books and you've written fiction. Um, how, how do you find jumping between those disciplines and which out of the pair do you prefer? Oh gosh, I mean, well they're both totally different and I love doing both. I absolutely love they're You know, they're completely different. I remember, you know, I, I remember learning, for example, how to play tennis and you, you learn to hold the racket in a certain way and then I learned how to play squash and then one of the things I had to learn about playing squash was to change the hold of the racket to something different and it's still a game with a racket and a ball but it's just slightly different. And I feel it's exactly the same with um, writing fiction and non-fiction is, you know, you, you just have to learn to hold the racket in a slightly different way. Um, so if you're looking for a story, you know, I, and the way I write non-fiction is that I, I will look at all of the sources. I will read everything I can read. And the question, including the, you know, the, the documentation and what the secondary material is, um, books have been written on the subject. And, I'll, and the question I always ask myself is, what is the story within the story? So where do we start? You know, where is the, the point of drama here? And it's about telling that and then arranging the other things that fed into that around that story. And that's often how I approach narrative, well, that's how I approach narrative nonfiction. But, but fiction is, you know, sometimes the story just is given to you full blown, or the characters are given to you full blown, and you have to let them tell you where to take it. And I think a lot of it is intuitive and it's different for every single person. And when you think about a topic for a, for a non-fiction book or indeed a fiction book, like where do you go for those ideas? Because obviously the, the five is a very unique and original take on something the world has thought they've known a lot about. Mm. But there had to be a point where you went, I've just thought of this really original take on this thing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, there, were, there was, there was, I mean, I, I think the thing is, I have always thought very differently from other people, I think, who write history books or, um, yeah, I mean, who, who approach history, because 
my sense is I'm, I'm really, I have never been interested in the stories we know already. It's great, you know, you can read the books about the kings and the queens and the generals and, and that's interesting, but I, I want to hear another story. And there's always a story under the story. Um, there are layers and levels of stories in, I, in everyone's lives. You know, there are different narratives. And I think because I'm always looking for the untold story, that that's what I'm tuning my eye to. So when I look at a story like Jack the Ripper, I think, well, where's, where's the rest of the story? What's the untold bit? And I realized, you know, that the women's story didn't really figure into this narrative. Um, but more importantly, I mean, to be perfectly honest, carrying on from what I had said about the Covent Garden Ladies, my first book, I wanted to write a book about ordinary women and sex workers in the 19th century. And my first instinct was, well, who were the most famous sex workers? And then my answer was, you know, the victims of Jack the Ripper. And then, of course, I started doing the research and I found that that actually wasn't categorically the case. And, and did that research ever sort of feel insurmountable? Because so much is written, but as you've spoken about before, there's not actually that much documentation, if any, from the time. And so did that feel too big? Um, no, it didn't. I mean, actually, I mean, I have worked... I mean, what's very interesting is that um, there's much more in the 19th century than there is in the 18th century. And most of my work has been in the 18th century. So working with so little in the 18th century, working in the 19th century was like, oh my God, I've got all this stuff. Where do I even start? Um, so I never felt impaired by what seemed to be the lack of evidence, though, because especially because I'm not, I wasn't trying to solve the case, you know, and as I've often said, the case will never, never be solved because there's just such, you know, in terms of police records and all that, there's so little there. And then what is there are newspaper reports and newspaper reports can be used and useful for different things in, and used in different ways. Um, so I didn't, I didn't at any point feel that there was going to be nothing to say about these women, you know, because in many ways, these women represent the lives of working class women. And that was the story ultimately I wanted to tell. And the book is an award winner, it's a bestseller. When you first put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard, what were your sort of hopes and expectations for it? Wow, well, I, I knew when I was writing it that it would change the narrative. And I'm just absolutely thrilled it has. Um, I wanted their voices to be heard and I wanted their voices to be um, part of what we think of as the kind of Ripper legend, the Ripper story, which has been really a story that begins with their deaths. Um, and, you know, to actually take it back and allow it to begin from their, their births, you know, suddenly changes the entire perspective of this narrative. And I think once you hear these women's stories, it's, it's very, very difficult for you to ever look at this Ripper story in the same way. Um, and so I think that's what I wanted it to accomplish. And it's remarkable, you know, I, I, I knew it was likely to strike a chord with people. I had no idea just how much of a chord it would strike.
And do you think there's a responsibility that comes with writing non-fiction to further the conversation instead of what I've seen on the other side of this particular story, so people trying to double down? Mm. Like, do, do you find that as a, as a writer that you have a responsibility? Oh God, I absolutely, I absolutely believe that. Um, that you have to have, you know, I mean, again, I think one of, one of the things that I find so frustrating is people who are opponents of this book automatically assume that I have, and I say this in quotes, an agenda. Um, whether that's an agenda to save the women from their labels as sex workers, which is absurd, because I clearly do not say that in the book at all or whether it's a, a so-called feminist agenda. You know, that, that's ridiculous because I feel very strongly that you have to let the documentation speak. And the documentation can say different things to you. And it can say different things to you, you know, when you juxtapose it with other things and when you frame it in other ways. It's all about context and when you understand what's being said around it. and. You know, that needs to be positioned into the conversation as well. So anybody who thinks I'm coming at it with an agenda probably has an agenda of their own. And in, in, in these books, you have dealt with issues like violence and societal neglect. Do you, and, and something that I, I found when writing nonfiction, something I've heard others say, is that there's sort of a, a slight niggle that you don't have with fiction that someone's going to read this, someone's going to be affected by it. I could be talking about their family, their friends mm. in a way they may like or, or dislike. And and is that something you fo you have in your mind when you're writing or do you work closely with your editors, your agent, your team to sort of do that any sort of sensitivity reading around it? Well, yeah, I mean, there is sensitivity reading. I mean, the, most of the books that I write, I mean, people are so long gone. And, I mean, it's really only with this book that I've had relatives come forward and actually, um, you know, thank me for writing this. I mean, there's nothing that I'm writing in this book that is any way disparaging of the victims at all. It's just the opposite. It humanizes them in a way that they haven't been allowed to be humanized. So I, I couldn't see where any objections would lie to what I, was, what I was writing about. The interesting thing is, as a kind of side note to this, is that a lot of the speculation within this field of what's called ripperology, which is about identifying a killer, um, who the killer might be, um, has quite a negative effect on the descendants of those who are being accused of being the killer. So, for example, I met a woman who was the um, great-great-granddaughter of Sir William Gull, who has been uh, supposed to have been accused of being Jack the Ripper. And she was telling me how deeply upset her grandmother was, her family was, to have been... Um, fingered in this way um, and when they especially when they know that you know they have they have letters and 
information from him that he wasn't even in the country at the time that these murders took place um, and, and how she said it affected the family. And I just think, you know, we do have a responsibility. We do have a responsibility with the past, about how we tell the past, and, you know, we have to think about how it affects people in the present also. Yeah, and... Sorry, we are by road and there's a ambulance, I believe, going past. Um, so, not just made Ali stand by road to do this. We are <laughs> in a building away from the rain and the snow. Um, but yeah, all, all of your books have, have been historical, but they touch on issues that are very pertinent in society today. And there seems to be more and more, sadly, opportunity to talk about these issues. Um, I was at an event that you did last night and someone in the audience asked a question about the so-called Suffolk Strander and do you think that as time goes on you could tell maybe more contemporary victims stories? Is that something that appeals to you as a historian, as a writer? Well, I don't know if I really want to necessarily talk about contemporary crime because that's not really my my field but um, what I am interested in is um, crime and what crimes can tell us historically about the time period in which they occurred and the society in which they occurred and what was going on and what elements had to be present to create both the victim and the killer and you know often as with this book you know you find that the resonances with our modern era are the same and you know I'm very fascinated with this idea of um, you know what is what is dependent you know what is it about a time period that people live in that that makes people do certain things and what is just in human nature what is it that we will keep doing and how you know these types of things I think are are really relevant questions to ask and and it, it gets to the heart at maybe looking at true crime in a totally different way, which is what I'm going to do, because my, my next book is about the Crippen murder of 1910, and I'm going to be looking at that in a very different way as well. I'm excited for that one. I've, li I've heard probably 35 different true crime podcasts trying to cover that case, so I'd be very, but, yeah, I'd be very interested to read your, your take on that. And do you think that there is a correlation? Because what I've always been told by people is that if you've got the right book, the time will come. Mm. And do you think there's a correlation between the success of The Five and even the fact that it was commissioned in the first place and sort of the rise in interest in true crime, true crime podcasts, true crime books, and even, I think, the one set of magazines that are having a resurgence of true crime magazines. And do you think... There's been a correlation. There, there wasn't actually. Um, this was this was commissioned. It was over. It, gosh, what I want to say it was four years ago uh, now, and it hadn't really happened yet. And the other interesting thing is, um, people are saying, "Well, this is this is like a true crime Me Too book," and Me Too hadn't happened mm. either. Uh, so all of this stuff kind of happened as I was writing the book. It sort of rode that wave um, completely unintentionally but it, it just happened that way um, which is quite gratifying but you know you, you can't time these things necessarily 
And and do you think because this book does have a very unique take, it's the first book that I've read that focuses on the victims and their lives. Do you think it could have been written ten years ago, twenty years ago? Not necessarily by by you, but by another historian because of the way that the world has changed. Hmm. Well, I think it. I think it's possible. I think it would may have been a slightly different book. Almost certainly would have been a slightly different book. I think, you know, as times change, we look at certain things in a different way. I mean, I even was looking back at the first book I wrote, and there were things that I may have done completely differently than, you know, you know that book was published in two thousand five. You know, I would have looked at things perhaps with a little bit more sensitivity. Um, society changes and we change and again I think you know we can't be too hard on ourselves um, uh, for not seeing things that you know wasn't in the kind of public consciousness at at a particular time. And do you think there's anything that agents and publishers can do to try and support authors, historians in telling the unknown stories because one thing that struck me when I saw you last night at an event was how dedicated you were to telling the stories of working class people and it's something that isn't really done hasn't really been done and there must be a reason for there's a clog in the system yeah there is um and it's something again I feel very frustrated about this and you know I have spent years of my life feeling extremely frustrated about this and it's you know, I'm interested in all stories, whether it's working class, whether it's middle class, whether it's upper class. There are people who have not had their stories told. People from all walks of life, all colours, all religions. And, you know, those stories are an absolute treasure trove. And what the kink in the system is, I think, um, is just... Uh, publishers, uh, television as well, because a lot of, uh, you know, the stuff commissioned is documentary. And it's, you know, kind of a, it's a vicious circle because people are afraid to invest in things they don't know about. And they think, oh, the public won't like that. It's not about Henry VIII. The public know about Henry VIII, and so they'll buy books about Henry VIII. The public know about Hitler. And the public like to buy books about, you know, the Holocaust, so they'll buy books about the Holocaust. And what they don't know about is, is this unknown person who had this incredible life doing these things who's completely obscure but I think people want that story because um, they will buy it if it is uh, packaged as fiction people want new stories when they read fiction so why would people want new stories when they read non-fiction you know it's I think it's a question that needs to be asked but I think it's about nerve and I think it's about um, uh, publishers being afraid to try something new that might not make money um, and on television as well um, because I think you know what you see on television sometimes translates into what gets published um, and they're afraid to show something that you know people aren't interested in and people want the, the Second World War so there'll be more Second World War documentaries and then there'll be more Second World War books and do you think in a way that non-fiction has a bit of a bad rep because I, I, I was saying before this that I try and read loads, listen to loads of audio books. Non-fiction is, until the last year or so, with this, uh, The Five, Book of Flaners, um, and other sort of books like that, that I've never really penetrated that. And, and I think that's 
you've only got to look in any bookshop, the size of fiction section compared to non-fiction, but as you say, there's a world out there of compelling stories. Yeah, there really is. Yeah. Um, and again, it's, it's about nerve. And, you know, publishing is, um, is an industry. You know, it is a, it, it's, it's there to make money. It's not an altruistic uh, business, although, you know, ultimately it benefits everybody to have books in the world. You know, what could be a more worthy cause than creating books? But, you know, they have to make money, and so they are cautious. Um, and I don't know how one gets around this other than to try to... Um, change the trends and, and hopefully the five is going to open that up and there will be more there'll be more untold stories being told and sought out and, and you're touring the book at the minute it's just come out in paperback how has that experience been are you enjoying it oh it's amazing I mean it is it is Overwhelming. I mean, sometimes I don't even have words for it. It's the the way in which this book has been received has been so extraordinary, um, and people have. Um, I mean, I, people write to me every single day telling me how this book has, in some cases, just changed their lives and changed everything they thought about so many things from the value of their own family stories to what they think of and define as history to Jack the Ripper you know people say that they will never read another book about Jack the Ripper again because of this they um, you know it's 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 just it's just amazing amazing and I'm overwhelmed I'm in a constant state of overwhelm good and I mean uh, again last night there was 50 60 people there in I think 80 people there. Was there? Yeah. Oh, I, I was sat right at the front, so I, <laughs> I couldn't see all the way to the back of the rows. But, you know, people love you and think you're fantastic and think the book's fantastic, and, and, and so do I. And do, just to close, do you have any tips for the budding non-fiction oh. writers? <laughs> wow. Well, I think, well, my first tip would be always write about something that interests you and you feel passionate about because if that gets published you will be talking about it for the rest of your life um, and you will be asked about it for the rest of your life so you want and also you know you're going to be spending a lot of time with it so make sure it interests you but also um, you know pay attention to the trends in in non-fiction um, and and see what it is that you might want to do that might follow one of those trends or even forge new ground off the back of new trends. Fantastic and thank you so much for, for your time today Ali and for coming out in the I was looking out the, the window. Miserable, yeah. miserable weather. Yeah, no. Sleet. It was kind of sleeting and snowing about yeah. five minutes ago. But but you're saying you're off to is it the book festival at Abu Dhabi? Yeah, next hey week? Abu Dhabi next week. Yeah, so yeah. hopefully touch wood you should have better weather. Oh I think it's meant to be glorious. Um Yes, looking forward to it. Well, you have to come back for the book festival. In oh, the I'm, I'm going to be. I'm really looking forward and to that. And see if you can catch the hour of sunshine. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and hopefully the temperatures will be above 10 degrees. I found in August in the past in Edinburgh that's yeah. been about that. Yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> still, still jumper time in, in yeah. August. But no, thank you so much. And thank you to the team around Halley for helping me organise today. And... I hope you have enjoyed listening as much as I've enjoyed doing the interview. Um, 
I could be here for days, but Hallie has other commitments. So just again, a huge thank you. And if you've enjoyed us, find us on Twitter and Instagram at au underscore pod. And I look forward to speaking to you all again soon. places feel like home and that's why I love shopping at Golden Hair Books. They're a small independent bookshop in Stockbridge in Edinburgh and I'm delighted that they're sponsoring this podcast. You can find out more at goldenhairbooks.com and you can visit them on St. Stephen Street in Edinburgh. I'd recommend it. Go and see Julie and the team. If you don't know what book you want they will recommend one and I guarantee it will make your day.